From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Hello from Total SF in exile. Hope everyone listening is safe and well. My guest today is Chronicle Health reporter Erin Alday. I feel horrible recording this podcast with Erin on her one day off, but I feel very grateful to be able to share her story and get a little more personal with a Chronicle colleague who's been making such a huge impact. So much of our newsroom's coronavirus coverage has been in orbit of Erin. We talk about how she fell in love with journalism. We talk about working at small-town newspapers in the Bay Area and how the coronavirus is impacting her life, both at the Chronicle and outside of it. We also talk about the positive feedback we've been getting from readers and make a pitch to support the Chronicle. We have some incredible offers right now. 95 cents for the first three months that renews at $14.95 a month. $69.99 for one year, and a $99 offer for the first two years. I think I'm currently on a $99 plan for one year. Still worth it, but you'll be getting a better deal than I have. Thanks to all who are supporting local journalism, whether it's The Chronicle or elsewhere. Aaron Alday coming up. I'm Peter Hartlob, and this is Total SF. Thank you very much. Aaron Alday, welcome to Total SF. Uh, usually I say welcome to the San Francisco Chronicle, but we are in our separate living rooms. I'm in kind of my living room right now. I'm also in my living room. Okay, what's your work from home space like? Can you kind of describe it to me? Do you, did you already have a space? Or no, did you kind of set up I something special? I had, I had a couch, and the <laughs> first two days that we were work from home, this is so, this is serious. I sat on that couch for 12 hours straight. I like did not move at all. And at the end of that second day on Friday, I was so fed up with that couch that like at 10 o'clock that night, I completely readjusted, like reordered my <laughs> living room to put a desk in front of the window and like get like a whole setup because I'm like, I cannot go on this way. Do you have you been around? I mean, you've been at the Chronicle for a while too. Um, when the ergonomics people come in and, <laughs> yeah. and like tell you like little things, like hey, you should probably have your wrists propped up at a thirty degree angle. I noticed you're typing <laughs> yes. at a twenty five degree angle, and um, I think if an ergonomics person came into my living room right now, even as I'm recording this podcast, they would just like cry. I'm actually sitting on my living room floor right now because I figured out I've done enough of these podcasts now that it, the best place for me to do it is to set it up on my coffee table <laughs> and just like sit cross-legged on the floor. <laughs> so I'm like actually sitting like that right now. Awesome. Well, I, I greatly appreciate you doing this. Um, I should say on your day off. And uh, yes. is that like a new thing for you? I mean, I've seen a story. It seems like multiple stories every day. Um, what day off number is this for you since this whole thing started? Well, since, I mean, you have to bear bear in mind, this whole thing started for me back in January. So I've been covering this since then. Um, I would say this is only my second day off this month of March. So, I mean, and, and when I say day off, I mean like, you know, a full day off where I was like not 
being not not being paid but like where i just wasn't like supposed to be working like i wasn't on yeah you know i've still been like kind of on the slide going into slack and answering questions and stuff but but only like a little bit of that yeah um but yeah it's been literally every single day well we're gonna talk coronavirus uh Unfortunately, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. I do that with everyone. There's kind of like you kind of have to talk about it now. I mean, I yeah. find, you know, there's no way around it. But I want to go back and I've known you for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, we chat. It's usually work stuff. I know a little bit about your interests and stuff, but I want to go way back and kind of get sure. your journalism origin story, if that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Bring it. Do do you remember the first time you like thought about journalism or maybe wanted to be a journalist or what what was kind of the what what was kind of the start for you? So for me, it's it's funny. It was kind of always there. And I I've thought a lot about this over the years because I can't quite pinpoint where it came from. But my dad was always is always like a super just news junkie. And he always we grew up in Southern California. I did. And he always subscribed to at least three daily newspapers, the LA Times, the local News Chronicle at the time, and like at least one other paper. And so I just sort of grew up that that being like, it was something he clearly respected, like a career he respected. Um, he was always reading the paper and I grew up just, you know, reading it like the comics over breakfast. And I so I think I just grew up in this environment of that was like something to aspire to like it just seemed like a really respectful job and so by the time I hit junior high I was already going for the school paper so I did that all through junior high all through high school and then at some point it hit me what I liked about it what drew me to it really was that I've always been or I was at the time especially like really shy but I Mm -hmm. like to be in the mix of everything and I figured out that being a journalist was the perfect way to sort of have both. So I could be kind of on the fringe, kind of quiet, not have to be the one driving anything, but I always got to be like right in the thick of it all. Was, um, was yeah. it hard to overcome the shyness? I I didn't quite have shyness, but I was always insecure. And I was a legal reporter. First, I was a sports reporter, then a legal reporter. And I remember like waiting till the last minute to walk up to lawyers because I thought they'd like think I was, you know, not smart. Right. And it, it was like the biggest thing for me. I mean, certainly the thing that came closest to ending my career, because I love journalism, was yeah. being able to walk up to people and talk to them and feel confident. That Did that come early for you? Was that hard? It was definitely hard. It was a hard thing. I mean, that's where I'm lucky I got that early start, um, like even in high school, because I was one of those kids that like in high school, like I didn't like having to be the one to call for pizza. Like I hated making phone calls. Like, I mean, just really extraordinarily shy. Anybody who knew me then would have said like that would have been the first word to describe me. Um, And I was. But you just you have to get over that. And I, I mean, I really just forced myself over it. And I think by the time I hit college, it. I had mostly pushed it aside and I kind of realized that I wasn't really a shy person. I think I was just, it's like one of those things that kind of gets incorporated in your personality when you grow up. Like I was really tall and I think I just felt really awkward and that was where the shyness came from. And once I sort of got some confidence, like you said, and sort of like started, you know, feeling comfortable in my own skin kind of thing, it wasn't nearly as hard. And I still, to this day, like probably my least favorite thing is that cold call. (laughs) Like going up to a stranger, like in a BART platform and just striking up a conversation or calling somebody, you know, random on the phone. I still don't love doing that, but you just sort of, you know, grin and bear it. Yeah. Um, Was there a, a, like a high school story or 
a junior high story or, or is there kind of a first um, story that you remember where you just really felt like a journalist? Not so much in junior high or high school, but the first story I did in college, I went to Berkeley, UC Berkeley, and worked at the Daily Cal. Mm-hmm. And I did this story, and it was in my freshman year, my first semester freshman year, and we had always apparently heard rumors that there was a porn library at Bowles Hall. So, uh-huh. like, they had, like, I know, they had, like, some box or something filled with, you know, magazines. So we didn't know what it was. It was just some rumor. It was the dumbest thing. And for some reason... They said, Aaron, you want to do this story? And I was like eager to prove myself. So I said, sure. And and I did the story. And it, re- it involved like at the time, like the phone system there was all you could. It, it was it went up like numerically. So if you could get one dorm room, then you could get like a whole floor just uh-huh. by counting up. And somehow I had like one phone number for Bowles Hall. This was the all male dorm, by the way, back then. Yeah, yeah. And I got like one phone number, so I just started calling every room like in a row <laughs> and eventually got to somebody who was like, oh, yeah, I know those guys like and gave me the number and talked to those guys. Like I got this full story. It was the dumbest thing because all they had was like a shoebox with some like magazines in it that just got handed down over the years. Uh-huh. But it's such like the college journalism story. Like it was yeah, seen, that's we, not made, a... we did the big blow up. <laughs> that's a great story, though. I mean, think about this is I'm sure pre-social media or I'm guessing. Yes. but. Yeah. I mean, that would be huge on social media right now. You oh, know, that, oh, for sure. That's a good sure. story. Yeah. No, it was, but it was ridiculous. But it was like, it took like so much sort of like this weird, like investigative work. And it was, it was this big, like, you know, banner headline, my first big banner headline. So yeah, it was awesome. And you knew you wanted to do that. I mean, all through yes. college, this was what you wanted to do. Yeah. I, I, um, I had to like, and I'm older than you, but I had to I had to work at a little paper and get to a bigger paper and get to a bigger paper. But Cal, it seems like they're sometimes people go directly to the Chronicle. What what was your path? You know, back then when I was doing it, it would, very few people went directly to the Chronicle. It does happen much more often that way now. But no, I applied multiple times to the Chronicle for like internships and got rejected. I still have a rejection letter from them that I kept. Um, but no, I did the same as you. I worked, it was all Bay Area. So I worked at the Napa Valley Register and then I worked at the Hayward Daily Review and then the Santa Rosa Press Democrat and then the Chronicle. Nice. Good memories there. Good friendships. I, oh, I worked yeah. at small town papers and I wouldn't trade it in for anything. No, it was a blast. Like it's funny when you're there because you're like, especially like Napa and Hayward, you know, you feel a little bit like you're dying inside because it's just, it's so scrappy and, you know, you're not necessarily loving like all the work you're doing, but the people were so fun and yeah, just learned a ton, still in touch with like pretty much all of them. Um, so yeah, I loved both those papers. And then the Press Democrat was just fantastic. Such Press a good Democrat. staff was and is a great place. I mean, it, yes. it's a great paper. My parents are up in Healdsburg. So yeah, when I go so up, you know, I, yeah. I read cover to cover. And um, But I, I remember those small papers, like, I don't know what Hayward was like, but I was at the Santa Maria Times. And I remember our Christmas bonus was a $10 gift certi- certificate for like Vaughn's supermarket. Yeah, we got, we got like, it was about a $20 gift certificate to Safeway. Same thing. Yeah. And we'd go buy beer, but it was like, it was like, give me nothing, you know? Yeah. No, it was offensive. <laughs> but we're at the chronicle now Aaron we made it we did no it felt really like this is it I finally made it this was what it was all about were you a health reporter before that and did you come in um working with health did you have interest in health 
So no, the short answer is none of that. Uh, I had been a business reporter in in Santa Rosa for the six years I was there. It, it, I kind of fell into business thing as these things happen. Um, quick story: I had, when I was hired at Napa, it was for like general assignment, but the business editor quit after a month. Mm-hmm. And because this was Napa Valley Register, they had like ten employees. They decided to make me like the twenty-two-year-old recent grad, the business editor, mm-hmm. and I took the job because it was ten fifty an hour, and I had been making ten dollars an hour. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so that was how I slipped into being a business reporter. <laughs> so I just kind of got hired a couple of years later at the Press Democrat to cover business, even though I'd never wanted to do that. So when I went to interview at the Chronicle, I remember Ken Connor was like well, what do you want to cover? We have a lot of beats that we're hiring for. Do you have any special interests? And I'm like, honestly, I'll, I cover anything. I just don't want to be a business reporter anymore. Like, uh-huh. That's it. <laughs> and so when he called to offer me the job, he's like, what do you think of health? And I said, sure, that sounds great. Let's just go for health. And uh, it ended up being just a really good fit for me. I mean, I like loved it right right out of the gate. What did you love about it? What what, it, what drew you to it? So what I love is it's very much a mix of like just real basic kind of news stuff and that you get like breaking news um and you know kind of i mean it's just like like science and numbers and data and just kind of a lot of the basics of journalism mixed with these really powerful human stories so the fact that you get to talk to like just i mean patient stories are always so compelling like they're never ever not just like you know filled with so much of like the human spirit and like human story and human drama um, you can find that in literally every single health story. And so the mix of those two things is just, I mean, every single story almost is is fantastic in that way. There's just so much potential. And I just, you know, it turns out, I didn't even know this until I started doing it, but it turns out I just think science is fascinating. <laughs> like, I just love talking to these scientists. I think they're super interesting. I want to talk about the coronavirus, but I want to talk a little bit about Last Men's Standing, which was your um, very large project uh, covering survivors of, of the AIDS ward from the, the 70s and the complexities of being a survivor, which turned into an Emmy award-winning documentary. Um, did this all kind of, th- and this is what I, you know, if, if someone brought up your name, that's what I would have thought before the last <laughs> few months. Um, did that kind of come to you unexpectedly was it a slow build did you pitch it right away is this huge thing that was going to be showed at the castro theater and and, and (laughs) film festivals what what uh what was the genesis of that so it was definitely the slow build i would say i had been so i i started covering hiv aids about 2009 when sabin russell um had left Mm -hmm. and he had been covering it for a long time and so i kind of took over that assignment from him and so one of the things that struck me first as somebody who grew up, you know, under sort of the cloud of AIDS in the 80s um, was that nobody called it AIDS anymore. They all called it HIV, which I thought was interesting. And so that was one thing. And then slowly, you know, I would talk to doctors who would talk about having PTSD from those years of like treating people and so many people dying. And then just kind of getting little bits and pieces here and there of hearing about this kind of long-term survivor syndrome, that there was this sort of generation of men who had survived and when you would hear the stories like the few stories that had been written about them they were always very hopeful like oh look at all these guys they're getting a second lease on life you know they're quitting smoking and quitting drugs and they're dating and they're having a great time because they never expected to have this 
And everybody, I was sort of, I was getting hints of like, that wasn't actually what was going on. And then I think what really kind of pushed me over the edge was hearing about a couple of long-term survivors who had um, killed themselves. Mm -hmm. And that just struck me as so, I mean, suicides are always terrible, but like to have made it through that period, to have come out on the other side and then to suicide just seemed just so awful. And so I remember at some point I'd gathered enough that I, right after Audrey was either, Audrey Cooper was either, I think she was managing editor and she got a groups of us together to pitch ideas, ideas and I pitched that one. And she, to her credit, was like, that is a fantastic idea. We're going to sit on it until we have the time and resources to do it right. And we, we did. We sat on it for like a year. And then she kind of said, okay, now's the time. And it was one of the first big projects we did where she, at least in, in recent times, where she kind of pulled me out and said, you have you know a year to work on this and then hired to... Um, videographers at the time we were thinking just we wanted some sort of video element but they Mm -hmm. they figured out pretty early on that they had enough for like a feature-length documentary um but you know they were essentially hired for i think aaron breathauer so she was aaron breathauer and tim husson and aaron had already been there but they hired tim specifically for that um and so yeah the three of us then spent a full year you know I, i identified uh nine nine men to focus on and just told their stories yeah, incredible, powerful work. I, I tell people when I give the Chronicle tour, you come in and you see Herb Kane's typewriter, and then everybody does the nostalgia thing, and then we yeah. walk past that and see the movie poster, and then I always is you know if, if there are two things I do in the newsroom tour, it's it's Herb Kane's typewriter, blast of nostalgia, and then hey, we put out a movie. I mean, yeah. we're a multimedia digital organization, and I yeah. thought that. Um, I thought that did so much psychologically for the newsroom. Not only was it great work, um, but it also was a great multimedia project that, you know, sort of, I I felt like more than any other digital thing that we did, it was kind of like flipping a switch. I felt that way too. I think what, and I've talked with Audrey a lot about that, about how it gave a lot of people the sense of, oh, wow, I can do this. Like this is something that, and and yeah, and I mean, we have had a lot of people. We haven't done another feature-length documentary, but we've done a, so many really, really powerful projects since then. And I think it's that kind of set a tone that this was something that the Chronicle was ready to invest in. Um, and we have. I mean, yeah. we've kind of we've followed through on that for sure. Definitely, definitely. Well, I, I feel like you should have been able to rest on your laurels for a decade on that. But, Forever, um, yeah. <laughs> but then uh, other other things happen. Do you remember the first time you like heard the word coronavirus or, you know, it just got on your radar? So, I mean, I knew about coronaviruses just from SARS and MERS, the Middle East Rep- Respiratory Syndrome, um, uh-huh. and just from having covered this stuff for a while. But this particular one came on my, my radar. I actually, I follow a couple of blogs that specifically focus on emerging infectious diseases just because that's what I do Um, and there had been one in particular that had had a few reports out of a mysterious pneumonia in China and I think the first reports were like end of December early January and I you know those things that the the infectious disease geeks get really like excited about that stuff and I was just sort of interested that they were excited about it but didn't really those things come up from time to time Um, but then, like a couple weeks 
there, you just kind of saw more chatter about it here and there. And then a couple of weeks after that, I think, was when the CDC did the first guidance saying, you know, screening people coming from China. And that was when it first sort of hit me that this was now something that people were really concerned about. Um, so that was probably about mid-January that it really, like, came up as a story that I was going to be covering. I, I feel like all of this you know, stuff that happened a week ago feels like four years ago. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> and stuff that happened in January seems like, you know, when I was a child. I, I don't yeah. know how to describe it. I, I think people can probably relate to that. How quickly did it ramp up for you? How quickly did it go from, um, this is, you know, something I'm going to write a few stories on, may touch us, may not, to this is, um, frankly, I mean, it's a once every half century health story. I mean, 1918, um, right. uh, flu, uh, influenza, AIDS, and this. I, I can't think of a, a fourth. Um, how quickly no. did it did it build up for you? Um, it was sort of like this slow build in January and February where I was writing a lot about it. But everybody I was talking to, including the CDC, was very much like, look, we're on top of this. It's concerning. The numbers in China are really scary, but but it's not going to be a problem here. I mean, that was really the conversation that you were hearing from kind of all quarters. Um, and then it really flipped. I want to say it was like the end of February when the first couple of community transmission cases came up. There was you know, we kept seeing these travel cases coming up and then all of a sudden there was this first case in uh, Placer County of um, somebody who had, no, sorry, it wasn't Placer County. It was Solano County of a woman who had been infected and they couldn't tell where she had gotten it from, um, which meant that just somebody randomly in the community had given it to her. And it just sort of, all of a sudden it's like, oh, this thing is really here. And which, which people had been talking about for a while that it, it probably was going to be in the community at some point. But that was, um, that was when we all knew it was here. And for me also, I had in early February, I had done a panel at UC Berkeley. I was moderating a panel at UC Berkeley with a couple of infectious disease folks and it was sold out. Like there were a ton of people there and there was a lot of interest, but again, it still felt like very removed from us. But I remember afterwards, there was a local public health person who was just chatting casually with me and was like, oh, it's here. It's definitely here in the community. And I was like, you, how do you know that? You don't know that. And she's like, I just feel like it is. I just think it is. And she had nothing to base it on. It was just a feeling she had. And I, I didn't know quite what to make of that because she was talking so off the cuff, but it really did stick with me. And so then I think when like a week or two later, we had that first case come up. I immediately kind of thought back to that conversation and it just, I think that was when it hit me that this was, this was really here and it was probably a lot more of it than, than we were aware of. Was there a, and, and I'm going to put a expletive warning on this cause I don't know how else to phrase this. Mm -hmm. Um, so there'll be a little red E on the iTunes download. <laughs> Yay. Um, was there like a, Oh shit moment, like where you realize this is on my beat. And I'm not going to get a lot of days off. You know, was there a moment where it just you completely processed the fact that you were going to be working incredibly hard and a lot of the focus was going to be on you? I, I feel like I'm putting pressure on you. I don't mean to, but um, no, so that's much, fine. <laughs> so much of this has been 
you know, a newsroom in orbit of of you. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, honestly, like it has. This sounds. I keep telling people. I keep like hedging every conversation with. I know this is going to sound arrogant, but but like, it does feel that way sometimes. Just because this is, it's not like fire coverage where there's not like any one person who has the expertise. It's like all hands on deck. Everybody's out there. And yes, you know, we have Lizzie Johnson, who's an excellent, you know, she goes on the scene and she does that fire coverage. And we have Curtis Alexander, who's fantastic on like understanding like how to fight fires and how these things happen and the environmental. And so we, we obviously have expert experts in that area, but it's not like every single thing about a fire is riding on that expertise, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's at least certainly early on in this, you know, and, and even now still, you know, you, you have to have a certain knowledge set to be able to like understand what's happening. And we're getting more and more people that have that now, but certainly early on that felt very much like it was, it was on me. And we, I mean, Catherine Ho is, is also a health writer and she is amazing um, and has done incredible work, but like, I'm, you know, 20 years her senior or something yeah (laughs) maybe not quite that much but like point being i've been doing it like a lot longer and i you know i covered h1n1 swine flu and so it's not like my first pandemic even but this is a totally new thing and so i i will say yeah at some point like in again that kind of end of february i remember pulling greg griffin aside and you know having a pretty like having kind of a heart to heart with him that like we needed or I needed to kind of stand up and like not run the show, but like take some ownership and like, you know, it was going to eventually basically be, you know, writing stories every single day, writing big kind of think pieces every weekend. And we really were going to need to go all out on this and get, this was going to be an all hands on deck story. Um, And it wasn't yet, but it was quickly heading in that direction and having that kind of conversation at some I don't remember when exactly it was, but it was probably around the time of that Solano case. Um, what are your days like? How does your day start? And and uh, and what are your days like now compared to what they used to be like? <laughs> so, so, I mean, it used to be I was like one of those kind of, you know, get into the office around like 9.30 or 10 and, you know, just kind of see what came my way and get off at like 6 and just normal job for the most part um but no now it's like you know i wake up around 7 30 and immediately for like half an hour i'm just on my phone you know figuring out everything that's gone on checking slack checking email checking twitter like all the news alerts and then you know around eight actually get up and then kind of check in with cat ho check in with editors you know kind of dig into Slack a little more deeply. And then usually around like 9.30 or 10, we have a conversation about like what I might be writing for that day. Um, and the crazy thing with the story is like whatever you think you're writing in the morning might be totally different by mm-hmm. two hours later. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, it, it kind of cracks me up. They're still asking me like on Tuesdays, like what's your weekend story going to be, which I always just laugh in their faces. Like, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I have no idea. Like, I have no idea what's going to happen in two days, much less this afternoon. So I'll tell you on Thursday what the weekend story is going to be. Yeah. What's what's surprised you about all this? Um, you know, and, and, and not just about what's happened with the coronavirus, but just what's happened in your community, in your newsroom, among your friends and colleagues. Has anything surprised you? 
Um, I almost hate to say it's surprising because that sounds bad, but um, I have been so impressed with everybody. Um, and so again, like it's not like I I couldn't have seen this coming. But it's, you know, because none of us ever saw this coming. None of us ever imagined everybody working from home, like working remotely um, and all being all in on one story for this extended a period of time. I mean, to have like to have the sports desk, to have the date book, you know, to have you be like writing new stories like everybody all in. But I, I don't know about what your thoughts have been, but I have been impressed by every single person. I mean, the dedication and then the quality of work people have been putting out and just the teamwork, you know, I mean, everybody like rants and vents on like private conversations on Slack. And I've certainly done plenty of that myself, but you know, it's, I just am in awe of how well everybody's come together in this time. Um, and it's just, it's delightful. I mean, I've never been more proud of this newspaper in this newsroom. I, and I'm always proud of it. Um, Same, but yeah. this is one of those moments that, you know, I, I think two things are going to, that I'm looking forward to. One is when this is over. And I don't think mm-hmm. it's going to be like one day suddenly it's gone and we're going to all show up and hug each other. Um, although that's how some, I sometimes visualize it. Mm-hmm. But I think going to my first baseball game, going to a movie, I'm going to cry. And when I see people mm-hmm. again, I don't see any of my colleagues anymore, but I'm you know working closer to them than ever. I think that's going to be very yes. emotional. And then yes. I think... And I think this way about, we talked about the digital end of it. I mean, when I started out, I was going to be a print reporter and I've fought to have a career. Um, And what I do isn't as, you know, important to the community as what you do or other people do. But I I wouldn't have had a career if I didn't, um, in my 30s and 40s, change what I'm doing and reinvent myself a few times. And I know I'll be proud of that, but I think when I retire, when I'm, you know, thinking about my career and it's over, I'm going to think back to these months. And and what you talked about, I mean, a month ago, I was reviewing the Sonic the Hedgehog movie. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm having to do news stories and, and a lot of us are, and I see what like Ideen Vaziri, our music critic is a lot of us like, you know, we're, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe even in the second half of our careers or later and have pretty sweet gigs and having to, go all hands on deck and I don't hear people complaining. No. I mean, we all complain, but right. I hear less complaining now when so many of our jobs have been radically changed and much, much harder and more uncertain and not able to get into that cruise control that kind of you get to have if you've been around for a while. Yeah. And I don't hear people complaining about that because they know it's about the community and I'm sorry. Now I'm monolo- I'm monologuing. I'm supposed to be interviewing you, but I, I no, feel- I love it. I agree. I think this is fantastic. And and I feel there, there's another part of it that's like, you know, the industry's changing. Um, I think we do great work. I think um, the Chronicle. I, I look at the history of the Chronicle because I'm in the archive and I see the ups and downs. And I already thought we were in an up. And having this happen to me is like proof to anybody that we're worth investing in, that mm-hmm. it is worth it to get a subscription. And there are times during my 20 years at the Chronicle where when I told someone they should subscribe, I felt a little bad about it because, <laughs> you know, it was really expensive. And maybe it was as simply as, you know, up in the North Bay, I know my parents didn't get their paper a lot because of yeah. the circulation or because right. I knew we cut a section. 
but anybody who comes to me now and complains about the Chronicle, I got both fists balled up. I mean, because I think yeah. we do incredible work and it's worth it. And I think right now what you're doing, and I'm going to turn it back to you because you you exemplify this right now, you know, all the great work you've done through this entire list. I want to point to you and say, look at her and, and you tell me that sixty nine ninety nine. if you have the money, that it's not worth it. And it's not worth it when there's a crisis like coronavirus or a fire or blackouts to have us there. And I think we're proving that right now. And I think you are the poster child for that. So, Well, thank you. But I mean, no, I mean, I agree that like that we are really like putting out tremendous work right now. And I mean, and I don't ever say that without like in the back of my mind, like a caveat. But right now, like just... I have I would feel the same way like I have no qualms whatsoever about saying this is a fantastic mm-hmm. you know publication we're doing amazing work and everybody should be investing in that because I think that and we're I mean and I and I hear that from people all the time now I mean I can't tell you how many emails I get from people being like you know just like I mean thank you for your work like like you're keeping your you're the only people like keeping us informed and and people like expressing concern they're like please don't get sick please don't let anything happen to you what would we do without you and yeah. about like the chronicle as a whole like they're just like please don't let anything happen to you guys please tell me that you guys are getting rest and taking care of yourself because we need you like I never get that kind of response from people and I think you know we are playing this super important role right now and that people are are appreciating that Well, that's a good segue to wrap up because I do want to let you enjoy your day off. Um, (laughs) You have so few of them. Um, When is like the last time you've had fun, done something fun, like been able to chill? Do those moments come? They do come. So I I live alone, and I um, I have created a a pandemic pod with my sister and her husband and my nephew who just turned one last week. Um, and they live in Oakland. And so I, we kind of agreed early on that, that I was part of their household. And so we Aww. see each other. And so like, you know, I went down to their house on Tuesday. We had a birthday party for him. He turned one and they had all the grandparents on Google Hangout and on, you know, laptops turned to him and he had his first cake and did like the whole party and everything. And I was answering questions from the coffee desk and editors about a story that night in between. But it still was just like, I mean, that's, you know, that's amazing. Like to get to spend time with my nephew who's just the best is, mm-hmm. Yeah. That that like today even I went there and you know went on a hike and saw him and that just that brings so much joy to my life. When people talk about kind of the social distancing and how strict you need to be, I'm like, of course we do. Everybody should be, but I can't. I will not give that up. Like that that is keeping me sane. I need that joy, and that you know his. Well, that that's your family. That's I don't think that's any different than me and my wife and my kids being right. here. You know, I mean that's your family and it's going to keep you healthy and yes. Well, I am uh, I am so happy you took the time. Uh, I felt bad asking, and uh, I'm extremely proud to work with you. You've done incredible work. And oh um, well, thank you so yeah. much. I love your I love your podcast. I love this. I'm so excited to be part of it. <laughs> well, it it will be out soon. Um, this one will be a pleasure to edit, and 
as a friend, uh, take care of yourself. Uh, Thanks. You take care of yourself, too. Mark down, as your union steward, mark down every second of overtime and buy a house <laughs> with it in the Bay Area. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Aaron. Thank you so much. Bye. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to my guest, Aaron Alday. Total SF is a production of the Chronicle. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album Community and Cable Car Bell Ringing by eight-time champion Byron Cobb. Aaron and my colleagues have been putting themselves out there doing incredible work. Now more than ever, support Total SF in the newsroom that creates it by signing up for a Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod. 